In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight, Psalm 112. This Psalm has no title, and this is another Psalm, we call it Acrostic or Alphabetical Psalm, like Psalm 111. What do I mean by Acrostic? It is 22 verses or 22 lines or sentences. Each one start with the alphabet according to the Hebrew. For example, A, B, C, D. So each sentence start in chronological order according to the Hebrew alphabet. It is formed exactly like Psalm 111 in the division of its verses. The verses are 10 verses with 22 lines, and each of this line or sentence begin with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Some believe that the author of this psalm is David. However, others believe that it has been written after the captivity, probably by Zechariah and Haggai, because the title in the Latin Vulgate ascribed this psalm to both of them. The Latin Vulgate is a translation done by Saint Jerome from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation to the Latin. So the title of the Latin Vulgate says it is written by Zechariah and Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah were prophets. After the carrying away to Babylon, after the captivity to Babylon, returned to Jerusalem in the time of King Darius. Long after those words, Psalm 111 were sung. And when they saw the temple restored, offered heartfelt praises to God with great joy. So Psalm 111, praising God for his wonderful works in the creation and with the children of Israel and in the life of each one. So after the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple, they chanted Psalm 111. Then they composed Psalm 112. What is the difference between Psalm 111 and 112? And both of them, by the way, we pray them in the ninth hour of the Agbaya. 111 declares the glory of God. 112 speaks of the reflection of the divine light in the people who are born again from above. If I am born of God, how I will live my life. That is Psalm 112. And God in Psalm 112 is praised for the manifestation of His glory which is seen in His people. Psalm 111, the work of God, whether in the creation, whether in the children of Israel, etc. But 112, how God is manifested in the life of his children, in his people. As 
God in Psalm 11 is magnified for his own personal acts in Psalm 112 he is magnified and praised in the life of the people as we say praise God in all his sins the last verse in Psalm 111 ends with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom that's the last verse in Psalm 111 112 actually takes up that theme and begins with blessed is the man who fears the Lord so Psalm 111 conclude by the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom Psalm 112 takes this theme which is the fear of the Lord and start 112 by saying blessed is the man who fears the Lord and according to St. John Chrysostom the first verse of this psalm comes as a fulfillment of the end of the last one of previous psalm so in Psalm 11 they say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom if a person lives in the fear of God how his life would look like that's Psalm 112 as if these two psalms are one psalm or continuation of the same psalm and just like Psalm 111 Psalm 112 begin with praise the Lord begin with Alleluia not every psalm starts with Alleluia but Psalm 111 starts with Alleluia and ends with Alleluia Psalm 112 starts with Alleluia Alleluia, Allelu, Hallelu means praise Ya, Yahweh, Jehovah so Hallelujah means praise the Lord you will find it in Arabic Hallelujah in English praise the Lord this psalm carries much similarities also to the book of Proverbs many similarities between this psalm and book of Proverbs therefore this psalm is one of the psalms that concern wisdom it starts by blessed is the man who fears the Lord and the fear of God is actually the beginning of the wisdom that's why this psalm is a psalm of wisdom and it presents a comparison between a wise man who fears the Lord because fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the wicked man who does not fear the Lord and that's why he has no peace a Christian ought to sing this psalm with perfect readiness after the absolution of his sins after we confess and our sins are absolved then actually we need to chant and pray this psalm because this psalm teaches us how to walk in the fear of the Lord and the Coptic Church prays this psalm in the ninth hour of Agbe as I told you it's a short psalm only 10 verses verse 1 to 3 the blessed man and his family who walk in the fear of God 4 to 8 comparison between the upright and the wicked those who fear God and those who does not fear God and last two verses the envy of the wicked verse 1 praise the Lord blessed is the man who fears the Lord who delights greatly in his commandments like 
other Alleluia Psalms, not all the Psalms start with Alleluia. The Psalms start with Alleluia, we call them Alleluia Psalms. This one begins with Alleluia, and as explained, Alleluia means praise the Lord. This was both the personal praise of the psalmist and exhortation to others to praise him. So when he said praise the Lord or hallelujah, he is saying this to himself and also to others to participate with him in praising God. And as I mentioned, the closing thought of Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, this closing thought is taken up and expanded in Psalm 112. That's why it starts, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. In order to encourage all to lead a holy life, the psalmist proves by various arguments the happiness of him who fears the Lord. He mentioned at least, I think, eight blessings of the person who fears the Lord. So when we know all these blessings, this would encourage me to walk in the fear of the Lord. But as it is not every sort of fear that makes a man blessed or happy, some people, when they, they fear their boss or they fear their superior, they fear them and obey them with resentment, with sadness, with sorrow. That's why David or Zechariah and Haggai added an explanation who delights greatly in his commandment. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. There is no resentment here to the commandment of God. Rather, they are happy, they delight their pleasure in the commandment of God. Because, as St. James said, even demons believe and tremble. So they, they fear the Lord, but they don't delight in his commandments. So the psalmist immediately explains what this fear consists in. Only those who take the greatest delight in fulfilling his commandments, for he delights greatly in his commandments, means nothing more than to love them exceedingly. He doesn't love anything more than the commandment of God. He's attached to the commandment of God and he finds pleasure in observing the commandment of God. So as if he's saying, blessed is he who has a holy interior fear of God with exterior readiness to obey his commandments. From within, he fears God. From without, he actually obeys the commandment of God. That's why he is truly wise and holy. There is enough in that fear, which St. John Chrysostom calls the golden gate of happiness. This fear, St. John calls it the golden gate of happiness. If you enter through this fear, you will be happy. So there is enough in that fear to make a man blessed. Not indeed with the pleasure that belongs to this world not with the pleasures of the world, but with such a measure of gladness as befits pilgrims in the way. We know we are sojourners here. We don't have permanent place here. We are pilgrims. But 
it is the comfort, it's the joy of the Holy Spirit that fills the heart of the person who fears God. And there are two distinct stages of progress set before us. Number one, the fear of the Lord which causes men to reverence and observe his negative law by abstaining from sins which he has forbidden. So that is one dimension. It, what we call it the negative law. God told us don't lie, don't swear, don't murder. I fear God and because of this fear I abstain from these sins. But there is another dimension that lies greatly in the commandment of God. It is the higher obedience which consists in carrying out with loving zeal his positive commands like put each other before oneself, like submit yourself to one another, like help one another, like greet one another with a holy kiss. The loving zeal for his positive commandments, that learning to do well which follows ceasing to do evil. So the first dimension is to stop to do evil, second dimension is to do well. St. John Chrysostom summarizes the meaning and says, Unless they give evidence of the same virtue, what defense or excuse could they offer for not seeking it with the same yearning? So in the last day, if we don't have evidence of the virtue, virtue of love or humbleness or any virtue, then what is our excuse that we did not pursue this commandment with zeal. For this very reason, this inspired author, Zechariah and Haggai, also said he will delight greatly in his commandments. This delight in the commandment of God is our motivator to pursue these virtues actually with zeal. The one who fears God as he should receive his commandments with deep yearning, hence love for the lawgiver rends the law kindly. When we love God, we will love his commandments and his law, and we will find delight in keeping the commandment of God. St. Eusebius pointing out that the expression fear God is often used in scripture to signify the imperfect worship paid to God by Gentiles in experienced in the law. The Gentiles, when they joined and converted to Christianity, they don't know the law of Moses. So, San Eusebius said, these people don't know how to worship God according to the law of Moses. The Christian church, as made up chiefly of Gentiles, is here intended as if he is saying, blessed is the man, blessed is the church that greatly delight in the commandment of God. And it's zeal in God's commandment contrasted with Hebrew indifference. So the Israelites have the law, how to worship God and the sacrifices and the temple, but they don't delight in his commandment. The Gentiles who became Christian, they don't know how to worship God according to the law of Moses. But they have great delight 
in keeping the commandment of God. Some scholars, and St. Augustine especially, say the man who fears the Lord point to Christ. St. Augustine, in his commentary on all the Psalms, he finds Christ in each and every Psalm. So he's saying, blessed is the man who fears the Lord is Christ. This man is Christ, who is the type, the symbol, the example of all of the saints. Because no one revered God the Father as the Lord Jesus Christ did. He obeyed unto death, the death of the cross. No one delighted in the Father's commandment as much as the Lord Jesus Christ did. He said, all the commandments that he gave me, I have observed them. The one who fears the Lord and delights greatly in his commandments has God blessing on his family. Not only him is blessed, but his family also. As we read in verse 2, his descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. The generation of the upright, those who fear God, will be blessed. So the psalmist pronounced blessing on the descendants of this man, the one who is upright the one who fears God. Mighty on earth, we can understand it in the physical way, meaning they shall be prosperous, honored, distinguished among the people, distinguished for their success in life. We can see how a man feared God like Pope Krellus, how this man was mighty on earth, even the president paid respect and honor to him. Here, a man who fears the Lord will be mighty on earth. This refers also to what was regarded among the Jews of the great desire and according with the promises found in the scripture. In the scripture, there are many promises to those who fear the Lord, they will be blessed and God will give them reverence they will be mighty on earth. But there is more promised here than just that fruitfulness to which the Jew looked as among the best of the blessing. So for the Jew, the best of the blessing is the fruitfulness, the the material blessing. But mighty on earth, not in a literal sense, but we need to understand it also in a spiritual sense. Their being strong in the Lord, and in the power of his mind, strong in their warfare against Satan, like St. Anthony the Great. The demons were afraid of him. He was mighty on earth. What inheritance would we give to our descendants greater than our delight in God's commandment and of our living practical faith by applying and observing his commandment? then our children and our descendants will be strong spiritually. Also mighty on earth, it points to the spiritual increase of convert and disciples for the teachers of righteousness. As we read in the book of Acts, and the Lord added every day to the church those who are saved. So the church became mighty on earth, increase in good works, 
on the part of these disciples themselves and if they lay to heart the lessons of their teachers. Mighty on earth, when we walk in the fear of God, many people will be added to the church and the church will be mighty on earth. St. John Chrysostom says, Scripture is frequently in the habit of calling offspring not what is born in the order of nature, but in fellowship of virtue. When we read descendants, descendants, according to St. John Chrysostom, doesn't mean the natural descendants, but means the spiritual descendants. As the Lord said to the Jews, if you were the children of Abraham, do the works of, of Abraham. And as St. Paul argued in his letter to Romans, who are the children of Abraham? Those according to the flesh? No, because Ishmael was born according to the flesh, and Isa was born according to the flesh. But who became the true descendant? Isaac. Not because of the natural birth, but because he walked in the footsteps of Abraham. And Jacob, not Isa, because Jacob walked in the footsteps of Abraham and Isaac. He who delights in willingly obeying God's commandment is worthy to become the father of saints. Like St. Paul, his delight was in the commandment of God. That's why he became a father and a teacher of other saints, like Timothy, Luke, Titus, and many more. Mighty even here upon the earth in the strife against evil in our spiritual warfare, blessed in their result, but mightier in the land of the living in eternal life, more blessed when those words are spoken, when the Lord in the last day will say, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. St. John Chrysostom responds to the reason of saying mighty on earth, because he said his descendants will be mighty on earth. So he said, why on earth? Explaining that to show that if such is its might on earth, just imagine how much more would be their might who enjoy heaven. So if they are mighty on earth, can you imagine their might in heaven will be extremely great? Verse 3, wealth and riches will be in his house and his righteousness endures forever. In verse 3, the psalmist also pronounced a blessing of the economic life of the one who fears the Lord. It is the second blessing. The first blessing, I told you there are about eight blessings. The first one, his descendants will be mighty on earth. Second one, richness and wealth in his house. It is the second blessing, the abundance of honor and wealth, which however do not lead to sin or influence negatively their godly life. Because sometimes when people have riches and wealth, they are tempted to fall in sin. But since this is a blessing from God, when God gives to a person riches or wealth, God knows that this will not lead to sin or negatively influence their godly life. 
we may read these words literally of abundant wealth bestowed on the righteous by God and used this wealth is used not for pride or luxury but for continual works of mercy like Malam Brim Gohari God gave him riches and wealth but he used these riches and wealth in the acts and works of mercy he will have his mind quite uncorrupted by such blessing by the wealth and the riches that's why the author added his righteousness endures forever wealth and riches will be in his house and his righteousness will endure forever but the higher meaning is not the material wealth or riches but is the true spiritual riches which are stored up for the poor in spirit often most needy in the prosperity of the world so many people are poor they are not wealthy but they are riches in the virtues and the fruit of the Holy Spirit and we may come at the truest sense by comparing the words of Apostle describe his own condition this verse actually describe what he meant by riches and wealth will be in his house and his righteousness endures forever St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 10 he said as poor we are poor yet making many rich as having nothing and yet possessing all things this blessing is to be understood of interior glory interior riches and the testimony of a good conscience and the riches of faith and that gain of which St. Paul speaks when he says now godliness with contentment is great wealth or great gain godliness with contentment is great gain when the soul is content with its position in life then the blessing becomes continuous for it is the soul that ought to be rich not the material riches but the soul should be rich in virtue for who can be richer than he who is heir of God if we are heirs of God and we inherit the, our inheritance from him nobody will be more rich than us but as I told you St. Augustine usually say the man is Christ so if we take the man to be Christ then the church which is the house of Christ you will find in the church spiritual riches are stored as you say wealth and riches will be in his house if the church is the house of God then wealth and riches will be in the church spiritual riches if we take it as of any faithful servant blessed is the man who fear God so it can apply to any one of us then his heart is the dwelling his heart is the house wherein as in an earthen vessel he stores this treasure his righteousness because it is God's free gift to him what is the house here for us it's our heart and we store in our heart the righteousness that God gave us free in baptism and God will make the heart of those who fear him his dwelling place 
for he pours in it the riches of his grace and divine gifts. As he said, I am standing at the door knocking. If we open the heart to Christ and Christ will in my heart, he will give me the spiritual riches and the divine gifts. He who fear God will enjoy the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 Unto the upright, those who fear God, there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. So the third blessing enjoyed by those who fear God is the light, light of prudence, light of understanding, light of counsel that shines from heaven on those who fear God. In their difficulties, God will support them. In the time of darkness, God will enlighten their life in the time of trials and the troubles of life. The psalmist recognized the darkness that often fills the world. But the upright who fear God will be blessed with light even in the midst of darkness. The relationship of God to the godly person is like the relationship of the sun to the moon. What do I mean by this? Moon in itself has no light, but the sun shines by its own glorious light. And since the moon does not have light, how it shines? It shines by reflecting the light coming to it from the sun. We will become light because we reflect the light of God to the world. So the godly are not left without guidance. Light here means guidance. Amidst the confusion and dangers of the world, when things are gloomy and doubtful, then comes a ray of light from God to show the righteous their path wherein they must walk to be in safety. Also, a light shines to the upright, light to cheer and encourage them in trouble. And the highest sense of words is the revelation of Christ. Christ is the light who shone in the darkness of the world, a light shining in the dark place of earth on them who are sitting in darkness and shadow of of death, then Christ appeared and enlightened us who were sitting in darkness and the shadow of death. And the light, God, He Himself, is gracious, full of compassion and righteous. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. He comes still in continual advance. Christ still comes several times to us. We don't see him physically, but he come and knock on the doors of our heart. Arising in the dark hearts of men as the sun of righteousness, so that they who were sometime darkness are now light in the Lord. Like the man who was born blind, who was living in darkness, but as he said, I know one thing, I was blind, and now I can see. Verse 5, 
which is the fourth blessing. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. So the fourth blessing consists in that spiritual joy that resides in the heart of those that fear God. When we fear God, we will have joy. A good man deals graciously. Those who fear God easily forgive any offense because they show mercy to human weakness. A good man deals graciously. Deals graciously doesn't hold grudges. He is a happy person, so easy to forgive. He is a blessed person. And he is also readily lent to those who need it and thus comply with the words of God. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. So deals graciously is about dealing with generosity, with graciousness. Doesn't hold grudges. He is happy. He forgives. He put up with the weakness of others and lends. He wants to share what God gave him with others. The one who fears God is blessed also with wisdom that flows from his godly character. That's why he said he will guide his affairs with discretion, with wisdom. He has the means to show favor to others by helping the needy and he is willing to do this and hoping for nothing to gain. He has wisdom in how to manage his affairs. In the parable of the unjust steward, the expression appears according to which we must do good with unjust money or unrighteous mammon. So the Lord told us, make friends with unrighteous mammon or unjust money. From there arises a question, are money and wealth unjust in themselves? Or what does the Lord wish to say here? Especially the man who fears God is ready to lend. Saint Clement of Alexandria explains this parable very well in his homily. What rich man can be saved? And he states, Jesus declares unjust by nature any position one has for oneself as one's own good and does not make it available for those who need it. So Saint Clement is saying, anything you have, in reality, you don't have it. It's not yours. Because we, we entered into the world naked and we leave the world naked. So anything we have, it is not our own good. That's why we need to make it available to others. When others ask to help, we need actually to help them. He declares that from this injustice, it is possible to accomplish a just and praiseworthy work. From this unjust money, when we use it to make friends by helping the poor, we are doing a just and praiseworthy work, giving relief to one of those little ones who have an eternal dwelling place near the Father.
This is the characteristic of a good man, of a heart that is truly sincere and godly, to do good to others and to assist them in their endeavor to secure happiness in the world to come. So when they help others, they are securing blessedness and happiness in the world to come. So the heart of this faithful to the divine word consists in a fundamental choice of charity toward the poor and needy. This person who fears God and delights in his commandment, according to the psalm, he fundamentally chooses charity toward the poor and the needy. But a good man is not only a man that has good work of grace in him and is ready to do every good work, but one that is generous, bountiful, and liberal. He is ready to give, but he will guide his affairs with discretion of his just management of his wealth regarding himself merely as God's steward. So this money is not mine, I'm God's steward, and with discretion he distributes this money. And assigning to each person a fair proportion of the riches, so as not to waste it by thoughtless abundance on one hand, nor to display narrow ungenerousness on the other. If he give one person, if he give abundantly to a few people and left the majority with no support, then he is not managing his affair with discretion. And the opposite is true. If actually he became not generous at all and is storing the money for himself, then he lost the generosity and the liberality that God is expecting us to do when we fear him. With discretion means also with judgment. So as God requires not getting his wealth unjustly, nor casting it away wickedly, nor yet withholding it uncharitably from such as needed. So with discretion means with judgment. He judges right how he uses money, where he distributes his money. St. Augustine, noting that almsgiving is mentioned in a later verse, prefers to understand this verse of the free forgiveness of injustice or offenses. So St. Augustine is saying, since there is another verse later in the same psalm about helping the poor and needy, then when he lends here, doesn't mean literally he give money, but it is the free forgiveness of the injustice of others and the offenses of others, which as we learn from our Father God, is kind of spiritual arms. Verse 6, Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. And this is the sixth blessing of the person who fears God, that he will always live in the memory of man, the righteous will be in everlasting remembrance, not by reason of their crimes like the criminal, as Judas and Cain and Herod and Pilate and Nas and Kephas, 
But his memory will be a glorious one, like when we remember Saint Mary, or remember Saint Athanasius, or remember Saint Macarius, or remember Saint George. And all the church of the saints shall declare his praise, as we read in Hebrews chapter 2, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praises to you. So that blessing shall abide with him and make his happiness sure and stable. Surely he will never be shaken, means his happiness will never be shaken, even in the midst of the trials of the world. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. Because he is a wise counselor and a generous giver, his memory shall be praised and lasting amongst his people. He will be in everlasting remembrance among men, and his name too will be written in the book of life, never to be blotted out. And thus, really and truly, he will be in everlasting remembrance with the angels in heaven. Also, we may take the words to be of the body of Christ, the church, unshaken through the ages when he said, Surely he will be never shaken. See, our Coptic church was persecuted from day one, but after 2000 years, the church is strong and mighty, not shaken. Always day by day, making memorial of God. We remember God all the time, the righteous one, and commemorating in his service, in the service of the church, the great saints of God. His remembrance will last with nothing to fear from evil tidings. As we read in verse 7, he will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. And this will be the blessing number 7. His remembrance will, will last he will not fear from evil tidings. Because he trusts in God, that's why his heart is established, and in the end, he will see victories over his enemies. Evil tidings are all around us and come to us every day. Yet the one who fears God will never be afraid. He will not fear the slanders and the rebukes of the wicked nor will he fear that frightful sentence of the eternal judge, our Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that he will not hear these words, depart from me who cursed into the everlasting fire. His heart is steadfast and trusting in the Lord. So this is the seventh blessing of the soul that fears God. A firm and fixed confidence on the divine protection through which it fears no evil, fears no evil, the evil tidings. Verse 8, his heart is established, he will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. St. John Chrysostom says, he did not say that he would not hear an evil account but that on hearing it, when he hears the evil account, he would have no fear. 
because God is with him. If I walk in the valley of death, I fear nothing because you are with me. The story of Job when the messengers of evil messages of evil succeeded one after another actually is illustration of the truth of this verse how Job was steadfast even with all these evil tidings his heart is steadfast trusting in the Lord in every adversity in every imminent danger his heart is ready to take refuge in God because he is always prepared and ready to hope in God never loses sight of God's assistance, never distrust God, never hesitate in putting faith in Him. Verse 8 is almost repetition of verse 7 to emphasize the point. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. His heart is strengthened in such confidence so that there is no danger of his failing enemies. He never will have the slightest fear of any coming danger from his enemies, and of course much less when he shall look down upon them powerless and defeated. That's what he meant until he sees his desire upon his enemies. What's his desire? To see the enemies are powerless and defeated. And observe the word until, as in the scripture, all the scripture, does not imply that he will begin to fear after his enemies have been defeated. It doesn't mean this. But rather, his everlasting protection from fear. The word until doesn't mean after his enemies are defeated, he will start to fear. No. Until means before and after his fear is gone forever. According to St. John Chrysostom, who are the enemies? The enemies is the wicked demons and the devil himself. So, until he sees his desire upon his enemies, our true enemies are the demons. Verse 9, He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. So that's the eighth blessing. Consists in making good use of riches. How he managed his riches wisely. For it is through God's grace that God's friends learn the wisdom of transferring their treasures. So when I fear God, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I will be wise. So I will distribute the riches in a wise way. And transfer these riches by means of all to heaven. As the Lord said, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. This doesn't happen in heaven. It happens here on earth. He is also wise because the word dispersed implies a wise and thoughtful distribution as part of the discretion that God is afforded. He dispersed wisely abroad. St. Paul actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 9 he quoted verse 9 of this psalm to encourage Christians to be generous. 
St. Paul said, as it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He will have his reward, not only in heaven, in the world to come, but even in this world, he will have an increase of power and glory signified in the scripture by horn. That's why he said his horn, his power, his glory will be exalted with honor. Once horn is said to be exalted, when he becomes stronger and more powerful, powerful doesn't mean violent. As I told you how Pope Krillus was powerful in the spirit, in the Lord, and the government feared him. The same happened with Pope Shinoda. To be exalted with honor means for one to become not only strong and powerful, but also full of glory. So Horn means strength and power, and honor means glory. This verse gives us to understand that arms, instead of hurting or wrestling anyone in their means, because maybe I think if I give alms, then my wealth will, will be little. No. Alms, instead of hurting or listening anyone's in their means, only tend to increase their riches, their power, their glory. And many examples of which are found in the scripture, like in the story of Job and Tobit. Last verse. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will see the eighth blessing of the righteous and he will be grieved. He will gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. So in close connection with Psalm 11, this man has indeed become like the God whom he fears and obeys. We are transformed from image to image to be in his likeness. So the man who fears God will be in the likeness of God. And the very things celebrated in the praise of God are those which establish the merits and qualities of this man who fears him. What we praise God about, praise God for his love, for his generosity, for his forgiveness. Then these qualities also became in his children who fear God. So the last blessing, which is number nine, is that the person fears God will overcome all envy. Yes, the wicked will see it and be grieved, but the righteous man will overcome all envy. In contrast to the enduring blessing upon the upright man, the wicked man will melt away. The blessing of the upright endures forever, but the wicked man will gnash his teeth and melt away. His misery will be at the worst as his desire is frustrated and he sees the blessing that come to those who fear the Lord. What's his desire? The desire of a wicked man to see the destruction of the godly people. But when he sees the godly people are blessed and blessed and blessed, his misery will be worse and worse and worse. The wicked will see the good works of God's servant and his happiness, his blessedness, 
and are naturally grieved to see them, the righteous, prosper. They shall reflect on the good works of the just and their happiness, and will be tormented with envy and anger. The wicked, like a mad dog, he shall gnash his teeth and melt away in grief. But meanwhile his desire in looking for the destruction of the righteous, this desire will not be granted. But the wicked himself shall speedily perish. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Church fathers take the wicked here to be Satan in his powerless rage at seeing the triumph of the saints. So every time the, the devil sees the triumph of the saints, he is angry, but his desire will be burst. Blessed and happy then is he who fears the Lord. Wretched and miserable is he who does not fear God. St. John Chrysostom says, What is the meaning of the desire of the wicked that perish? The desire of the wicked shall perish. It does not survive in any fashion. So the desire of the wicked will not survive. He is saying, since the kinds of things they lust after are basic and temporary, lust also imitate these realities in fading and perishing and having no roots. Because the wicked actually desire the pleasures of the world, and the pleasures of the world are vanity, they are passing and temporary. So his desire also will be fading away, because there is no roots. Now if such is the fate of the sinner in this life, consider what it will be like in the life to come. So if that is how he lives his life, the wicked man, what punishment he will get in eternal life. This actually concludes Psalm 112. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.